Right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football, with games being played nearly every day. And with the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more, to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store, over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook, joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. Charlie, we've been criticised in the past in this podcast for being too negative after Spurs have won, so make me feel positive about last night. It was a clean sheet. Uh, It was an improvement on the previous game. Um, It keeps the Europa League hopes. I know some fans aren't particularly enamoured with the Europa League maybe we'll get into that but it keeps those hopes alive um, I think look, it, it was fine it, was, it, it wasn't it was hugely entertaining you're going to have those games over the course of a season you win the game you move on from it pretty quickly I mean Tottenham have to because they play again on Thursday and then Sunday I, did, I didn't think it was that bad it was just it was just really flat but I mean it was 10th v 11th behind closed doors uh, you know it, it, there was always a risk that it would be like that and when you have conceded a lot of goals you know, sometimes you are you are going to be a bit more defensive and pragmatic. You know, I think given the state of that defence against Sheffield United, I think in the immediate aftermath, if you'd said to most fans, look, I'll offer you now in the next game a clean sheet and a win, you'd probably have taken it. It was just, you know, the reality of watching that wasn't hugely enjoyable, probably. James, did you enjoy it? Not especially, no. Um, I mean, what I would say, if you're looking for a positive, was that, that, that Spurs... One improved on the previous performance, and two were the better team on the night. But <laughs> with respect to Everton, I'd say that was a bit of a low bar, really. I thought Everton were like, like bewilderingly unambitious and poor, uh, which isn't to completely detract from Spurs' performance, but it, it certainly is quite a big factor in, in the result. But, you know, there are a few moments of uh, of quality into play. I think particularly in the first half, they moved the ball around okay. And they were reasonably solid defensively. I don't think they exposed themselves too many times. I don't, I don't think they got caught out too often. So I suppose you could say they did. They uh, they did what they needed to do to win the football match in those circumstances. And as Charlie says, you know, when the games are coming with such regularity, it is difficult to. It's probably difficult for a manager to change too much tactically because you can't you can't really spend days on the training ground thinking about the Everton game when it comes so soon after the Sheffield United game and so soon before the Bournemouth game. You don't really have time to say, this is Everton, this is what we're going to do. So when you factor all of that in, it's kind of fine. But I mean, no no better than that. I mean, I thought, the, I think as you touched on there, James, I think the first half performance, there were some good moments. And I, and I did feel they were, Spurs were a bit brighter, a bit sparkier than, uh, than they often have been in first halves. I, I, to me, what happened was, when you do go one nil up and you have a bit of a shaky defence and you haven't won many games recently, they, they just look like a bit of a lack of confidence in the second half, which is understandable. And 
a resistance, probably because they have been so vulnerable defensively, to really just going for that second goal and killing it. Um, which I think that was what made for quite a cagey second half. Um, and, and the fact that Everton didn't really offer a lot just just added to that sense that it was a game that was petering out from quite early on. But I think that was a lot of that was to do with confidence. And there were some bright moments in the first half. There were a few moves where you know Spurs broke with a bit more purpose than, than they often have done recently. I know a lot of Spurs fans have kind of uh, <laughs> theories about teams that are massively out of form suddenly turning up and playing Tottenham and, and then playing a, a million times better and Spurs rolling over and uh, and that team getting the result. I guess we kind of saw that with Sheffield United on uh, whichever night it was, Thursday night. I think the opposite was probably probably true of this game. Everton, I think since the restart, had been playing quite a lot better and had sort of made it a steady improvement under Ancelotti. But I mean, I just couldn't believe how bad they were. I mean, it was... It sort of... <laughs> I, I just could, I just couldn't get my head around the fact that they they were one 0 down in the game against a team who were clearly quite low on confidence and they weren't just ambitious at all. I mean, I think they had was it six touches of the ball in the box. I mean, I know this isn't an Everton podcast and we shouldn't really care. But <laughs> it, 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 you, do, you do have to factor that in. I mean, they were so bad. Yeah, it was amazing hearing um, Gary Neville furious at Gilfy Sigurdsson for bottling out of. I think it was a fifty-fifty with Harry Winks. Uh, and he and like he never wouldn't let it go. It was it was bugging him all all evening, and he kept going on about it. And they were terrible. Like you kind of expected, you would definitely expect a bit more from them. Like if they because if they'd won, I was prepared. I prepared like a sarcastic tweet about how uh, Carlo Ancelotti should have been Spurs manager instead because you know he he obviously got down to the last two when Spurs were trying to find a replacement for Pochettino back in November. And uh, but yeah, you know, watching Everton, you think, wow, like he's. It, 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 I mean, I know look, results have improved. I think most of those results have been against bottom half teams, admittedly. Uh, but it didn't. It, it wasn't really like a compelling argument that he should be Spurs manager instead. Um, one thing that I did kind of slightly bother me watching Spurs play is that the way that the game drifted in the second half reminded me very much of the West Ham and Man United games. And I know it can go in different ways. Like West Ham, they won two nil. United ended up one all. Last night they ended up with a one nil win. So it's not. I'm not saying that it's like you're guaranteed not to win if you play that way. But Charlie, do you think it's some? Do you think they should have done a bit more? They could have done a bit more. Or is it just a confidence thing? I, I do think confidence is is a big part of it. Like I say, I do think when you're um, you're not winning games very often, you're not keeping clean sheets, you can get caught a bit between sticking and twisting, and it also ties into the substitutions point that James has been. Um, you know, very hot on. And and it is interesting. I mean, only West Ham and Burnley have made fewer subs than Mourinho since the restart. Everton made all five of theirs before Spurs made a single one, which is interesting, especially given it's a week when Tottenham are going to be playing on Thursday and then again on Sunday. So you'd think if ever there was a time to freshen it up, this would be it. So, you know, it's it's hard to say whether there's necessarily causality there, but that's maybe a part of it. You know, you, we, we've seen other teams change games uh, with those kind of subs. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, again, and it ties in something, Jack, you've talked about of Tottenham kind of letting games happen to them. Um, and I was fearful, I have to say, that when Spurs weren't making those subs, that it was going to be one of those occasions where you kind of invite an opponent onto you and get sucker punched late on. But look, we shouldn't be too negative. They, they, they did hang on. So... You know, you could say it was uh, a good, strong, solid defensive performance. Um, 
maybe as well it is a consequence of this packed fixture schedule and there being tired legs in the second half of games and and matches just drifting away uh but like I, I guess the fact they won those West Ham and um and Everton games would probably be what Mourinho points to and the fact that you know they they didn't allow despite the performances in the second half not always being amazing they didn't let their opponents get back into the game the thing I'd say about the substitution sorry it, it's not just about the end of this game and how they played at the end of this game because clearly you know they won 1-0 and you can point to that and say well it was enough but it's about the Bournemouth game and then the Arsenal game as well right if you yeah that's what I mean yeah I mean Kane had what I think is being diplomatically described as another selfish performance, and, and he, you know, he was involved in some really good moves, and he dropped off and played some good passes. But towards the end of the game, I kind of felt his influence waned, and I just wonder whether you know it, it's difficult because <laughs> there isn't another natural striker in the match day twenty as it is now, and once Son's gone off and Lucas has gone off, there isn't anyone else who's played up front before. I don't think. But it's those kind of things over the course of this pack schedule where you think like if you can give Harry Kane like 20 minutes rest here or there or, you know, if you can change it up and like, I don't know, I mean, who else would have been, I mean, Ndombele is the obvious one who we've talked about quite a few times. I'm just trying to work out who else would have been on the bench. So I'm actually looking at who else is on the bench. Let's not pretend Jetson. I'm not looking at, looking at it on my phone. So yeah, you've got, you know, Skip, who we know is a tidy player who could have come on for the last 10, 15 minutes, I think, and done a job. You know, it's the fact that the other substitutions came late as well, didn't they? I mean... Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's Jensen Fernandes as well, who's he's pure legs for that kind of situation. Yeah, and we've said before, he looks quite good when he comes on when they're trying to run the clock down. He did it well in that Southampton Cup game. When he came on, he, like, kept the ball and sort of ran it into corners and sort of kept things ticking over. He was doing that really well. And you just think, like, if you're not going to use him in those kind of situations, in this bizarre mini-season, then when are you going to use him? Premier League football is back underway and right now we're offering a 30-day free trial to The Athletic for a limited time only. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to sign up and enjoy the best football writing anywhere just as the Premier League reaches its conclusion. One thing that caught everyone's eye Charlie was the little fight between Son and Hugo Lloris right at the end of the first half. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, it, it came from the fact that um, on an Everton attack, uh, just before the end of the first half, Son kind of just didn't close down. Yerry Mina, Everton went forwards, um, and Richarlison got a shot away that that went just wide. And and as well, the context, and, and we're not sure how related this is necessarily, but Son put in a really feeble uncharacteristically so tackle uh, or not even a tackle um, for Sheffield United's third goal on Thursday night and Lloris let him know and Son bit back and then it kind of built up a little bit and then at half time they went to confront each other and luckily the Celso was there and was able to kind of break it up and then other players got involved uh, and then yeah the, the understanding is that they they did make up pretty quickly and you know it, it's interesting watching Larice up close. It's been one of my favourite things of um, behind closed doors football is watching Larice. I mean, he is so vocal. He doesn't shut up. He is like a coiled spring. He's just jumping around the whole time. Like he looks so pumped up. There, there have been times where he's been like waiting for a free kick to come in. He's just like you know, on his line, like chomping at the bit to just do something. And the cross comes in, he'll get it and like hurl himself to the ground and. And so it doesn't surprise me away seeing how kind of wound up he is. You know, he's constantly talking, telling people where to go, uh, what to do. Um, 
so something like that isn't a huge surprise because you know he he is he's always on the edge and and likewise I can understand if if you are a player who and and I think that's great by the way you know it's great to have that kind of communication and that fight and that leadership but I can also understand why if you're someone like Son who maybe is having a bit of a frustrating time since the restart and you feel you're being singled out um, and you know within the context of you're in a team that just lost their last game badly a lot of words were said. Uh, and so, yeah, they had this confrontation. They they got angry, and I think that's fine. Um, and it looked, you know, they were embracing pretty quickly after they came out together for the, se- for the second half, then at the end of the game. So I think, you know, anyone who's played in a competitive team sport, you, you, you know, you have these disagreements with your teammates from time to time. Uh, is it part of a wider kind of malaise, as I think some people wanted to suggest I think it's hard to say I think it it probably is a consequence of frustration for sure you know when you're part of a team that's underachieving and and finding things difficult then I'm sure it is more likely to happen than when things are totally harmonious but and you know without wishing to tread too far into the territory of you know you want to see this kind of fight from players but given Spurs have been a team where they've been accused of being a bit passive you know it wasn't such a terrible thing I don't think to to see a couple of players who, who obviously did really care uh, and, and I mean, Larice, he he clearly cares a huge amount when you watch him up close. James, did you did you feel that sense that the Spurs players do finally care? Um, I, I'm not sure. I'd say that that incident really really would change my thinking too much on that. What what I found a bit strange about it was that you know, Larice has been captain for a few years now, and there there've been so many moments where where feasibly a captain of a football team could like lose his rag in public like that and he's never done it before I mean we obviously we don't know what's happened on the training ground or in the dressing room but for him to do it in that moment where I, where I thought you know you know that ball with, from Lucas was miles over Son's head he was never going to get there and fair enough he's not tracked back but he, I, I'd also say he was never going to get anywhere near Mina once he's on the ball either it's not like he's going to run 50 yards he's going to run 12-15 yards and lay the ball off which is what he did and then, you know, obviously in the heat of the moment and from 50, 60 yards away, Larice isn't to know that. But it does seem like it did seem like it's such a strange moment for him to decide this is when I'm going to publicly chastise one of my players. Sometimes you do just get that red miss. Like I, I do feel, obviously, having only played football to a, a very bad level, but so, sometimes things do just trigger you or teammates. And, and it is quite surprising what it is. And sometimes it can be something as innocuous as that that's, kind of, you know, probably in isolation that wouldn't have bothered Larice so much but if you are at a point where you're thinking little things keep slipping and then something just tips you over the edge and you know that might be someone not tracking back or putting in a stupid cross or taking a foul throw or you know these sorts of things and it it seemed like that kind of thing. Effectively Lucas gave the ball away twice in that passage of play right he did that sort of tried to flick the ball over his head on the edge of his own box and lost it then Spurs eventually won the ball back and he kind of overhit that diagonal ball like way over Son's head out to be picked up by Mina. And you just think like, well, if anyone's sort of massively culpable for that, surely it was him, right? He's given the ball away twice in sort of 30 seconds right at the end of the first half, once in a really dangerous position. And he just kind of walks off the pitch and no one seems that bothered. It's hard to know though, because sometimes, I mean, it's often effort, you know, perceived lack of effort or, you know, not following instructions, those kind of things that often piss players off more than a misplaced pass or things like that it's I mean we don't know as well how much you know there may have been very we don't know but there may have been very clear instructions that when this happens our wingers need to be closing down or whatever it is so it it can often 
be things that slightly surprise you that really wind players up. And Charlie, you you wrote in your piece after the game about how Spurs have this perception of being too nice under Mourinho, but there's one man in particular who's keen to change that. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I mean, again, one of the things I've really enjoyed about being at the games is watching the Celso up close and and you do get a sense in games and, and again, this happens in even games at level I play at that there will be players who just really piss opponents off that all game long they, they just become a bit of a focal point be it the way they put in their tackles or the way they chirp away or the way they dive or the way they appeal to the referee and Lacelso kind of combines all of those things and it really winds opponents up um and in the first I think it was in like the sixth and seventh minute he put in this crunching tackle on uh, Gomez fouled Richarlison left his footing on Coleman after the whistle had gone squared up to Richarlison he's just he's a pest he's a menace and it's really really good to see because you know, if you can do that and get away with it, and that's another great skill for Celso's. I mean, as I said in the piece, this is a guy who put in a horror tackle on Aspilicueta, and even the VAR, he got away with it with him. I mean, he 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 is someone who, that one was probably a more obvious one, but he's quite cute. He knows what he's doing. Um, and yeah, I just thought he, he showed that kind of fight, that kind of nastiness that Mourinho told the players he wanted um, and that Spurs have often been lacking. I mean, Lamella is the one who... Uh, has often been that guy but he's also often not really been in the first team so Lo Celso is Tottenham's best player technically and again he was man of the match last night um, but he's also the one who shows a lot of fight he has a lot of needle and yeah I just think he uh, he really kind of led, led by example last night and showed Everton that you know you might think Tottenham are going to be a soft touch but we're not, and when it, when you're doing that as early as like the sixth or seventh minute, you know, really fronting up, that that does lay down a bit of a marker. I think just to underline how good he is at getting away with it, he only he only got two fouls awarded against him last night. Yeah, two fouls and no bookings. I mean, he, he did one on Richarlison where he didn't. The ref didn't even really give him a talking to. I sometimes feel with like um, foreign creative players that they because they're like expected to be you know, in the team for their technical skill and creativity, that a lot of the time, like, referees won't really be wise to how dirty they are for a while. And it'll take a while before referees clock onto them. So, like, off the top of my head, like, Fabregas, for example, love kicking people. David Silva kicks people. Or, I mean, he's not as, like, physically intense now as he used to be, but he kicks. He used to kick people an awful lot. Uh, Samir Nasri, when he could be bothered. Like, the players like that often often play in that way and it takes a while for refs to get wise to it and so it might be I think at the moment Lascelles is in this honeymoon period where refs haven't noticed what a how nasty he is and I, you know I, I, I don't mean that like critically at all I love it I think it's great and I think I think it's it's exactly what's what Tottenham need in midfield but it might there might come a point next year where he's getting booked every game but for now it's like he just got carte blanche to kick whoever he wants <laughs> he's more than taking advantage of it no, I, I definitely think that's true. There, there's there's a perception thing, and we're all guilty of it. I mean, I don't think any of us, when Lacelso was signed, really thought he would be this kind of player because our focus was on the fact that he's very technical and creative. So you don't, th- and, and slight of build as well. So you don't think of him that he's going to be this guy. But um, it's it's been such a, a pleasant surprise. I guess that's often the case with Argentinian players, isn't it? Like even with Lamella, like when Lamella showed up, everyone was everyone thought he'd be like a kind of Pablo Aymar type player because he's like a, a number ten and played for River and everything. And yet, you know, 
sort of seven years on, he's actually not very good at creative stuff at all. Like I think you picked this out in the piece he did the other day. Like he's 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 not very good at playing those kind of clever through balls and stuff. But what he is good at is kind of charging around and kicking people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Rabona against Asteras Tripolis was a long time ago now. A distant memory. That does lead us on to uh, the other piece of yours that I wanted to talk about um, before we get onto the Sheffield United game, which is like Spurs is attacking Charlie. Like it's not. It doesn't seem unfair to, to question at times watching Spurs recently whether, you know, have they forgotten how to attack? Is that unfair? Yeah, I mean, the, the premise of the piece was that they're getting fewer shots off than ever before since Optus started collecting the data in 97, 98. And, you know, I make the point that, you know, having shots doesn't a good team make. But what I would say is that the top five shooters in the Premier League this season are also the top five teams in the Premier League table. So, you know, it, it, it certainly not a bad thing to be getting shots off and Spurs have become really shot shy and there are a few reasons for this I mean one look at this in the piece is the absence of Ericsson who still has the best chances per 90 chances greater per 90 this season apart from Jedson who's played 60 minutes so we can't really include him um you know so there's that there's this kind of creativity deficit I mean you look at Spurs countering and I cite a couple of examples in the piece and and often they'll they'll get into a decent position and then just seem to not really know what they're doing and and there's such a reliance on Aurier to be the creative hub I suppose you know they, they they're quite good at working the space to Aurier out wide and, and he gets into really good positions and and sometimes his crosses are good but they're inconsistent it's not a kind of a method you necessarily want to rely on um so all of this is combining, and especially when they play... Yesterday, I was really pleased that they played more of a 4-3-3, or they, they play three central midfielders, essentially. But when you're playing three wide forwards, really, behind Kane, that just does create an issue with then linking the midfield with the attack. And so against Sheffield United, you had Bergvine, Son, and Mora off Kane. And... Yeah, I, I just don't think that really works nearly as well. I think it's so much better when you've got someone at the Celso playing further up the pitch. Uh, and, and this also ties into, Jack, what we talked about, I think at the time of the Liverpool um, Spurs game in January, the 1-0, and talking about the misconception that, you know, guys like Guardiola and Klopp play with, or certainly Klopp, you know, people think maybe, you know, that, that idea of heavy metal football and they just go out and express themselves and attack when actually they're extremely well coached and drilled and you really have to be to break down opposition defences because most Premier League defences are pretty decent. Like West Ham, in that West Ham game, West Ham, you know, one of the worst teams in the league, but when they came to Tottenham a couple of weeks ago, it was hard to break them down and you do need to be a bit more coherent than often Spurs have shown, especially, I think, when they play with those three wide forwards off Kane and it just, they, they often just, look like they really lack cohesion going forward I think I think that lack of confidence that, that, that looks fairly evident at the moment I think is, is partly born out of um, sort of an uncertainty on, on what they're going to do when they get the ball and not having sort of pictures in their minds of the way they're going to play and that goes back longer than Jose Mourinho I think that goes back into probably from the midpoint of last season maybe as we've sort of discussed before um, it, it just feels to me like the, the second they pick up the ball, you know, like two or three years ago when they got the ball, they would they would know exactly what they were going to do. They'd know who they were going to pass to and who that player was going to pass to and the spaces they needed to move into. And it was all very fluid and it all felt like it worked. And even when Spurs weren't playing well, it felt like they could score goals. Um, and it felt like they could score goals against even the best teams. 
but now it kind of feels like they have to work so hard to, to create chances because they just don't have the sort of the instant sort of natural rhythm of the whole thing. Completely. And I think it, I think Charlie's right. It's one of the most, it's kind of the biggest difference, I think, between, or one of them, between, on the one hand, Klopp and Guardiola, and on the other hand, Mourinho, is that Klopp and Guardiola, like, rigorously coach their players on you know, the various complex attacking patterns. And that's why they, att- and the way that they attack, it's not, it's not instinctive. It's incredibly drilled. Whereas with Mourinho, even though people might think he's a kind of, you know, he's all about defense, he's all about organization, and he's very, and everything. Like in reality, the way that he coaches attacking is not as, it's not really as rigorous. It's much more about go on, lads, figure it out for yourselves. And that's a bit of an exaggeration, but that is basically the point. And that's why I think when you see Spurs go forward nowadays, and James is right, like this isn't just down to Jose, but when you see Spurs go forward, it's like they don't really know what they're going to do. They don't know what the next part is going to be. And that means they always take an extra touch. The players sometimes run into each other. It's just a bit more, it's a bit more raggedy and a bit less clean than it used to be under Pochettino. And I think that's a huge, I think that is a huge issue in how Tottenham attack now. Gary never mentioned it last night, didn't he? That it's like when they had the ball in the attacking third, it was kind of like it was one pass at a time, and then the player would put his foot on the ball and get his head up and look around and try and work out where the players were, and then play a pass, which makes it also sort of stilted and static. It just doesn't. You can't open up a team like that because, like a, a defense worth their salt, are going to like be able to set themselves to to stop the ball. You need to be able to move the ball quickly and have that picture in your mind of what's going to come like two or three passes down the line. The Spurs just haven't had that for for eighteen months at least. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. We have to look back at the Sheffield United game because we haven't done a podcast since then. And it was, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's unfair to say, it was like the the worst moment of the Mourinho era so far. Just because they were quite good in the first half. Like it's not, it's not, you know, it's not ridiculously, uh, I'm not, I'm not rose tinting this to say they played really well. Got incredibly unlucky with that ludicrous decision. But then they collapsed in the second half. Now I, d- I don't want to dig back through the details of the game now because it was a few days ago. But Charlie, what I do want to talk about is what Mourinho said afterwards and then in his subsequent pre-match press conference about the mentality of the players, saying that the players had mentally died after the VAR decision and that had destroyed me a little bit on the inside because the last thing in football is when you feel you should do more. What do you make of these comments and what's gone on there? There have been a lot of games this season, pre-Mourinho as well, where you did feel there was a bit of a collapse. I mean, the Bayern Munich game at home, the 7-2, a few days later, the Brighton 3-0, which was worse than Bayern and, and worse than Sheffield United. That was that was the idea for this season. Obviously, then the flip side, you've got a team that uh, just over a year ago were facing a three-goal deficit in the Champions League semi-final and came back to win. So, you know, there, there is obviously some mental strength there. And, and you know, how many times did they win tough games uh, under Pochettino? I think in the case of this game, it, it did look like that. You know that they they suffered that um, 
you know massive blow it was and that was really you know it was harsh and those things are quite hard to come back from and but then you know the response probably wasn't what you'd want albeit against the team in Sheffield United who I do think are not a lot of fun to play against when they have a lead to defend you know they can sit in they'll dig in they'll make life very difficult for you so you know I don't think it was an easy assignment but yes you wanted to see a bit more fight and then the comments yeah yeah I think he he wanted to get a reaction um he's probably aware there are only so many times that you can take that almost nuclear option he obviously felt you know, with so much at stake in the next few weeks, you know, trying to get into Europe and how important that is to the team. He felt it was the time to do it. And yeah, some might feel it was harsh, but I I think I think he was just trying to get a reaction and he would probably feel vindicated because in the next game, I suppose did show a bit more fight and, and they won the game 1-0. James, how do you feel about it? Do you think he was right? And do you think he should be saying it? I guess the two slightly separate questions. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think he's necessarily wrong. I mean, it felt like, I mean, and Charlie spoke about this after the game, it was kind of the classic thing you expect to see from a bad team where, and this happened to Spurs a lot when they were maybe not quite a bad team, but certainly not as good a team. So I can think of an example when um, Spurs are 2-0 up at Old Trafford in 2009, I guess, Nine, 2009, yeah. 2009. The Howard um, Webb pen. Yeah, and Howard Webb gives this ludicrous penalty against Sorelio Gomez for a foul on Michael Carrick, I think it was. Um, and like from that point, like, like Spurs have been playing really well and leading 2-0. And from that point, they just completely, completely collapsed. And in the second half, they ended up losing the game 5-2. And it just felt like one of... I've seen that happen so many times to Spurs. Uh, but not in the last few years. That's why it's sort of a bit of an unpleasant surprise, really. That the second something goes against them, like bits of a contentious decision or, you know, like a VAR, a VAR call that he didn't really see coming. And obviously there, were, there was one of each in that game because there was the the, the Norwood elbow on Son sort of immediately after this loud goal, which hasn't really had much attention. But I, I mean, I can't, I can't believe he didn't get sent off for that. I mean, in, in the modern game, I mean, if it had been like in the flow of a game pre-VAR, you kind of think you might get away with a thing like that, but in this in this day and age, to use an old man's phrase, like you, you surely expect a player to be sent off for that. Um, anyway, but yeah, as you say, Spurs I think reacted really badly to the adversity, um, and, and having had the halftime break to sort of get their head straight and vent a bit of anger and you know work out how they were going to address the second half, uh, they they clearly haven't utilised the opportunity and the second half performance was I mean as I tweeted after the game. Uh, and a few people took exception, but it was very much like that sort of dog end of the, the Tim Sherwood era those last couple of months. The goals they conceded were very much. I mean, I think in the game at Anfield in that season, where they lost 4-0, I'm fairly sure they conceded a goal exactly like that third goal, where like the ball has come, ball has come right to the byline and been tucked back and no one's picked up the runner and he just put it in at the near post. I'm fairly sure Daniel Sturridge might have scored basically exactly that goal. It, it was definitely a worry. And as you say, I mean, Mourinho will feel justified in going public with that because they played defensively much, much better against Everton. But yeah, I, <laughs> the confidence that footballers have isn't entirely sort of in their own heads. I think a manager can influence that and can, you know, as we were saying earlier on, having a bit of certainty, having a bit of certainty about what you're doing on the pitch will, will give you confidence. And that is, to me, I mean, and it's difficult to say this from outside, obviously, but to me, that feels like a thing they don't have at the moment. 
And that is, I think, the manager can give them. I think that's so true, James. And you look, you know, someone like, let's look at Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp. I mean, is Genie Vijnaldum, would you have said he was a mentality monster when he was at Newcastle? Of course you wouldn't. You'd have said he was a, I mean, his thing, wasn't it, that he always scored at home and never showed up away? He was just a pretty standard player. You wouldn't have said anything about his mental strength. Obviously, now he's part of this thing, this machine at Liverpool, and he's <laughs> toughened up hugely. So I, I, I completely agree with that. I think that, you know, the, these things do come from the environment and and look and, and I'm not saying this is Mourinho's fault I'm just saying Spurs are in a, a difficult moment in a way to use that football expression uh, and that might take a little bit of time to change and, and I also think you make a really good point about um, you know it being a hallmark of teams that are maybe a bit brittle that when something goes against them they fall apart. And and the thing with that is it's so relatable. You know, I think all of us can imagine we would react exactly like that. But that's what you want. That's why we're not of elite uh, professional sportsmen. And that's what you want from the people you idolize and watch that. Yeah, you have this thing, you know, that that sense of like, oh, well, the world's against us. There's nothing we can do. And I can see why that was upsetting for Mourinho. And, and, and we don't know kind of, you know, whether he what he said at half time and whether he could have handled that differently and whether another manager could have got that reaction but certainly you know the the second half performance was was pretty disappointing i think the evidence like we'll find out soon enough whether it works or not because you know, not simply because spurs have still got what, four or five games left this season but of course i think next season will be the real test of all this but i'm not i'm just not confident that Mourinho saying this will have the effect that he wants it to have just because, you know, we talked about this before, I don't think that Mourinho's, I think that Mourinho's like psychological and motivational methods necessarily work as well now as they did 10 or 15 years ago. Like, you know, Mourinho's golden era was a long time ago and footballers have changed a lot since then. And certainly on an individual level, I don't think that players react well to Mourinho's treatment of them. That much is, you know, is evidently true from the Manchester United experience. And I, whether Mourinho criticising the whole squad, as he has done in this situation, I just, you know, let, let's wait and see. But I think, you know, it's, I think it's it's not unfair on Mourinho to be sceptical as to whether or not this approach will work. Um, but in the, in the immediate term, we've got two more tests coming up. Firstly, Bournemouth on Thursday. Um, they have to win this, don't they? I mean, Bournemouth have lost every game since the restart, Charlie, and uh, they should be there for the taking. They should be, unless this conforms to what James was saying, the theory that, you know, when a team hasn't won in ages, so they'll have to turn up uh, against your team. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also called confirmation bias and and, and most fans <laughs> and most fans feel this way. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they do need to win this game. They're playing against a team that are second bottom of the table. Um incredibly low on confidence first goals massive I mean you know you can imagine if Bournemouth go ahead and have something to defend it could be tricky if Spurs score first they should win it reasonably comfortably because you'd expect Bournemouth's heads would go down um yeah they've got they've got to win they've got to keep the pressure um you know it is a reasonably congested uh table Wolves have lost a game now so they are you know within reach they're only four points away um and they've got some tricky games coming up so yeah, I mean, look, you go there, you win that one, and then you start thinking about Sunday. I didn't see Bournemouth against Manchester United at the weekend. I gather they started quite well, and then uh, and then something went against them, and they collapped and lost five to Old Trafford. Actually, um, 
Uh, but I saw them against Newcastle last week and they they were incredibly bad. In fact, that, that's the kind of thing that contextualises where Spurs are, are at actually when you watch when you watch a performance like that, because as bad as Spurs have been, you know, in games like that Brighton game that you mentioned earlier, Charlie, I mean, they were nowhere near as bad as that. Um, so if they play anywhere near that level, Bournemouth, then then I would expect Spurs, even if they don't play brilliantly, to be able to win that quite comfortably. Um, yeah, if they if they can kind of raise themselves for one last hurrah, then, then perhaps it's a bit more complicated. But even then, I think if Spurs are slightly... Increased confidence and competence. I think. I think they should be able to win that game relatively routinely. How much would you rotate for that ahead of the, the Arsenal game? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? I, I mean, ha- having said what we said about Kane before, I mean, again, I mean, I, I don't think they should they should drop him from the. I mean, if we get to a situation where there are a couple of goals ahead after an hour or so, I think that that's when you want to take Kane off in that game, definitely. It's difficult, isn't it? Because do, do you kind of rotate from the game that played against Everton or do you rotate or pick that your team for Bournemouth with the Arsenal game in mind? Because like Bergwijn, for example, I would probably want him to play against Arsenal just because I think he's a better bet than Lucas. But then do you play Lucas again against Bournemouth and, and rest Bergwijn again uh, on Thursday night or do you play them both for 45 minutes? I'm not really sure how you address that. I'd probably play Lamella in that game um, because I guess he probably... He didn't play... A great deal last night and you probably wouldn't start him against Arsenal. This would be a good game for someone like Sessegnon to play, I would say, but it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like that's going to happen anytime soon. Like Gedson as well, perhaps you'd be put into the team and see how he got on. Um, you know, it would be nice to see a bit of Ndombele maybe, who knows. And then of course it's Arsenal on Sunday. It seems like this is not going to be decisive in terms of Champions League football, which I imagine is beyond both teams now, but uh, Charlie, it's a huge game, isn't it, in terms of making Tottenham feel like they're on the right track. Yeah, I I was saying this to James actually yesterday. Arsenal have shown that things can, the mood can change very quickly. I mean, after they lost to Brighton, it was pretty doom and gloom. They'd come back, lost to City and Brighton. Louise was clowning around. All of a sudden, they've won a few games and, you know, the mood music is back to being, moving in the right direction. And, And I know that might be because of Arteta and some might think he's very different from Mourinho, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if Tottenham win their next couple of games, you know, one of them obviously being against Arsenal, then I think that will change things. And suddenly you're thinking, yeah, it's been a really difficult transitional season, but maybe uh, maybe next year it'll be better, it'll be different. So, yeah, I think you're right that it's, you know, it's it's important in the race for the Europa League as well, though it may well be that it goes down as far as eighth to qualify. So they, they may well both make it, but it, it would be massive for the whole feeling around the place um, if they could get that win and you know get a lead over Arsenal and ultimately finish above them but the thing is as well no the thing is well sorry I was just gonna say it's so hard to know because in you know even in there are what between that Arsenal play uh, Leicester and Spurs play Bournemouth so there could be such a swing in uh, mood but I feel like both of those clubs are on such a knife edge uh, mood wise you know one defeat and it's despair and one win and it's uh, maybe you know we could be building towards something so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how they go into that game James what do you reckon it's, it's a difficult one isn't it I mean as Charlie said before you know two weeks ago he went back to immediately after that that Bournemouth game uh, you know or uh, sorry the, that bright the Arsenal Brighton game sorry um to a point where you know Spurs had drawn with Manchester United and beaten West Ham and, and Arsenal had lost to City and and then to Brighton, you you might think well th- that looks like it's going to be quite an interesting one. That's gonna, that could be quite a, 
quite a good game for Spurs. But now, you know, Arsenal have really improved since then. Spurs have had that particularly troubling wobble at Sheffield United, although they have bounced back from it against Everton. Um, I mean, Arsenal certainly look like they're in better shape than Spurs on the basis of what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Obviously, that's a very short-term vision. Uh, yeah, it doesn't feel like a great time to, for the game for Spurs. I mean, for, for it to be, for the first game, for the first North London derby at the new stadium to be played behind closed doors, um, regardless of momentum and whatever else, I think it's pretty, it's pretty bad, really. It's a shame. Um, and it's normally the kind of game where you think like the crowd could probably make quite a big difference. Uh, and whereas I think we said there not being a crowd at Bramall Lane for that game last week, Prior to the game, we seemed we we thought perhaps would be something that worked in Spurs' favour. Obviously, that didn't prove to be the case. Um, you would probably say that this will be the one game where not having the crowd would would be something that would work against Spurs. So, hopefully, we're wrong again. Well, I think with that though, with that Sheffield United, we were sort of right in the in the first half. Sheffield United were actually quite flat, um, and they might have been less flat with the crowd there. But I guess the problem is when you have something to defend, crowd or no crowd you're going to feel motivated. And maybe that would be the case with Spurs. If they if they got a lead against Arsenal, even without a crowd, they they would just really dig in because obviously the players are aware of how important that game is. When's Arsenal's Cup semi-final? Is it the weekend after? It's the 19th. Yeah, it's the Saturday after. 18th. This one. They should focus on that, really. <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've got another game in between after Spurs. Well, they should focus on that week game. <laughs> Yeah, they've got Liverpool next Wednesday. Oh, well, you've home. got to play well. They've got to play well against Liverpool, the champions. You've got a you've got a hard something back. Excellent. Well, um that game Sunday afternoon. We'll be back with another podcast on Monday after that game. Thank you very much, James and Tom and Charlie. Thank you very much for listening. If there's anything you want us to discuss next time, please tweet us. Sorry we didn't get round to many of your questions this week, but we'll see you next week.